First thing I'd like to do, though, is just to make a little comment, if I can, about Overseas Council. Um, uh, when a guy called Rob Kerr brought Overseas Council to Sydney in 1993 uh, from Melbourne, where it first kicked off, um, it was clear to Coralie and I, because we were um, uh, just, as it happened, uh, among some friends who were involved with Overseas Council, it just occurred to us that what Overseas Council did was really quite exceptional. Um, its model is to fund and train up Indigenous or local pastors, uh, local Christians, where they are, get them some theological training, teach them some ministry skills, and not um, drag them out of their local environment, as had often been the case in some mission work um, really after the Second World War up until then, when a lot of missionaries had been pulled out of their local countries, taken to the Western world to be trained theologically, and I think some statistics somewhere said that about 20 to 30% of them actually went back. A lot of them actually stayed in their new adopted countries, and uh, Overseas Council has an entirely different model, which is to train local people and give them the skills they need in their local environment. And that's a great thing. And Overseas Council, I think, is one of the very few parachurch organisations that really gets it right. Um, unfortunately, uh, that's been my experience over the years. Crusaders is another one that really gets it right. Uh, Overseas Council is certainly one of those. Secondly, it's important, I think, for us to be able to engage with a guy like John on his topic tonight. Faith and democracy are, in fact, uh, two of the fundamental tenets of Australian history. And everyone seems to forget about the first one. We're reminded on a daily basis about our democratic system and our liberal Western constitution that we were able uh, to receive, um, thankfully, I believe, and the human right protections and the structures that are part of our, our constitution are particularly important. And it's just great to be able to engage with someone who really knows the nuts and bolts of what it means to be in Canberra, to be a politician, uh, to have to deal with compromise on a daily basis. Um, that's a really good opportunity for us, and so I really hope that we can take that up tonight. So without any further ado, I might ask John to come up, if that's okay. And while he does that, I guess, as you know, John's a very well-known public figure in this country. And if you want to find out about public figures, or at least to get another perspective on them, then you look at that um, Bible of truth and inerrancy that's called Wikipedia. <laughs> and so, when you look at Wikipedia and you put in John Anderson, bracket Australia, you come up with two John Andersons. One was the Chalice Professor of Philosophy at the University of Sydney, up until 1956, and this one. And this one has, after his name, Australian politician. And what it what Wikipedia tells us is that John was the member for Gwaida in uh, the northern New South Wales from, I think, 1989 to 2007. Uh, he was, became a minister in the first Howard government in 1992. And he then, I think, moved from primary industry to trade shortly thereafter. Transport. Transport, sorry. Transport. There you go. Starts with a T, has an R and an A. Yeah, that was close. <laughs> And then around about um, uh, 1999, became the Deputy Prime Minister and the leader of the National Party and fulfilled that role until 2005. So Wikipedia tells you a lot of things. And the first statement that it makes about John is this. In 1989, 
Anderson was elected to the House of Representatives as MP for the rural seat of Guida to replace Ralph Hunt. Handsome, well-educated and well-spoken, he made an immediate impression in the National Party. My first question to John tonight is which one of those statements is most true of you? Well, you said it yourself, Wikipedia never lies, John. None of them. None of them. Right, okay, fair enough. Um, now, John's also someone who has been known to actually wear his heart on his sleeve, nail his colours to the mast, speak it as it really is, however you might like to say. And um, particularly after the result of the WA Senate election, uh, I'm just wondering if John's opinion of the Greens has changed. In 2004, he said this about the Greens. They, that is the Greens, are a home for people who in the 1950s would have joined the Communist Party. They are watermelons, many of them, green on the outside and very, very, very red on the inside. Is that true? Is that still your view? No, more like avocados, really. I think um, green and shiny on the outside and green and pulpy inside with a big brown nut at the middle. Now, is that a reference to Bob Brown? Well, he certainly took it to be one and hasn't spoken to me <laughs> since. Um, interestingly enough, Dennis Shanahan said that particular remark and the ones that I made afterwards stopped them getting the balance of power in 2004. He never wrote it, so I felt disemboweled, but he did say it to me privately. Um, now, I'm not here to be political tonight, uh, but I do challenge Christians to think long and hard about the Greens because at heart they are people who worship the environment, many of them, uh, and who believe that the enemy of the environment is man, and I don't think that can be squared off with Christianity. That's the only political comment I make tonight, I promise. What was your best moment as a politician, leaving aside the po particular politics that you adhered to? What was your best moment as a politician? Um, uh, <laughs> I think it was probably the day that it finished. Um, <laughs> It's a, I don't say that altogether lightly. It's an incredible honour and an enormous privilege to have served uh, you know, at a high level in the country. It really is. But I have to say to you, it's unbelievably tough. Probably more, I mean, it's a few years on now, so I can say it. For me, the unbelievable and exquisite agony of it was a separation from family all the time. Uh, it was just almost more than I could bear. Um, I suppose in a policy turn... Funnily enough, it was, a, it was a bittersweet victory in a way because the ball was so badly dropped that I managed to engineer a thing called the National Water Initiative. And most of you will have forgotten it, but it was described at the time by the OECD, which is the rich man's club, the 33 top nations in the world, and their headquarters are based in Paris, as the world's best water policy. Uh, and it was to deal with all of these problems we hear about. Australians are the second heaviest users of water in the world. Uh, on the second driest continent on Earth, and this was the, a national plan for determining how to distribute water and to end the old practices of uh, allocation by patronage or by bureaucracy or by history, and to ensure it was done on the basis of sound science and profit market principles. So it was a very fine moment when in the Prime Minister's courtyard we announced it together uh, with the agreement of all the state politicians, 
And probably the thing I regret most about politics in a way was that shortly after that I felt free to go and I genuinely thought other people could take that policy on better than I could. I thought there were others who could, me having developed it, thought it all out and put it in place, take it forward, and they didn't. And so, frankly, water management in this country, despite the fact that on paper we have what the OECD describes as the world's best water management model, it hasn't happened. This is the people who followed on in the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, I'll be blunt about it, um, did nothing or made a mess of it, and the state governments haven't helped either. Too many levels of government in this country. I said I wouldn't be political, and I just have been. I think we all agree with that, having had to deal with councils around here lately, anyway. Um, John, another question. Did you see God at work in the parliament? Oh, yeah. But not only God. He has an opponent. And sometimes you could feel, you know, in the, sometimes in the worst moments in the parliament, you could feel the very forces of evil circling. You know, when you see that massive vanity, when you see egos, when you see people obsessed with self uh, to the denigration of others, sometimes that's pretty ugly. Uh, but then you, you know, as you do in all walks of life, you see also the nobility in others. That's a reflection of he whose in Im, whose image we are made in. You see both. You see it writ large. There were moments when I saw unbelievable honour from other politicians and people involved in politics, and indeed even in the media. There weren't many of them, there weren't enough of them, but they were there. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the other thing that happened was that you would often see Christians in the most wonderful way, just coming in quietly and saying, we're supporting you, we're praying for you, we're working with others in the parliament, so-and-so's in need, what we think what you do for the nation's important, that sort of thing. Some of you might have been, might have been amongst them. And, I, and I'll say it, uh, one of the most remarkable at it, who never sought any fanfare for it, was in fact Peter Jensen. And he has a pastor's heart extraordinaire and he used it to great effect in Canberra. There are others. David Bissot was one. Uh, and in all the years I was in Canberra, uh, as a member of the National Parliamentary Fellowship, uh, we had many, many guest speakers over the years. The two standouts, one was an Aboriginal Christian man from Dubbo uh, and the other... The absolute standout, a moment when you felt the heavens had descended into Canberra itself, was Charles Colson. Now he's died, but the former uh, Nixon, so-called hatchet man who became a believer. You all know that story, wrote the book Born Again, so on, and about 25 books after that. You all know who I mean. And he gave a, sermon, he gave a talk in the parliament. Peter Costello was treasurer, I was deputy PM. We walked back to the PM's office. And Peter just uh, put his arm around my shoulder and said, John, we're mad in this place. When you hear, being in this place, when you hear Charles Colson speak, it makes you feel we should just be out there doing God's work directly. It was, uh, so there were those very high moments, yeah, there were. How did God work in you while you were in Canberra? Well, he kept me alive. Um, but uh, that's being flippant. Um, I hesitate to answer because it might sound immodest. But look, I think I'm deeply thankful that uh, in many ways God preserved me from the sorts of uh, sins that ensnare many Christians. Not to say that I was perfect by any means. But I'm deeply thankful uh, that um, the opportunity didn't present itself. Uh, you know, I wasn't sort of compromised by those sorts of things that can happen to 
men in um, positions of power when it goes to their head. Uh, I was thankful that the, uh, I had a rural electorate that kept my feet on the ground, you know, bush people are pretty good at that, they, they don't go for people who are on themselves very much. I remember in the 1993 election, the one that they said we couldn't lose, do you remember that one was Hewson versus Keating? Remember those days? That's dating us a bit now, isn't it? But I remember in the little town of Wellington, launching my campaign off the back of a truck the old-fashioned way, we were trying to get a bit of attention, you know, a bit of repartee with a crowd, didn't work. The old days of political exchange, they've, they've, they've collapsed. I mean, the wit of the days of old. I remember um, Artie Fadden, who was a former Deputy Prime Minister and leader of the then Country Party under, under uh, Menzies. Uh, and he was campaigning in 1949 in the tiny little country town uh, of Warrialda, which I subsequently came to represent. Uh, and the whole town, you know, six or 700 people turned out to hear him on his soapbox because there was no television and he was the best entertainment going. Uh, and there was an old fellow down the back. The moral issue of the day was contraception. And there's a fellow down the back. So Artie's out the front on his soapbox and he's, he's sort of saying, now we're going to end petrol rationing and we'll end butter rationing because it was still in place in 1949 after the war. And we won't nationalise the banks because that was the Labor Party's platform. And there's this fellow down the back. Every time he gets a moment, he yells out, Artie, what's your position on contraception? And Artie wouldn't answer. Couldn't get a handle on it. So go on for a bit longer. Artie, we want to know what your policy on contraception is. Artie still couldn't get a handle on the, a quick uh, response. Eventually, it was presented in a way that he could. Artie, you've told us all about your policies on everything we don't want to know about. I want to know what your policy on contraception is. Do you believe in it or don't you? And Artie shot back and said, as a matter of fact, I do, and in your case, I'd make it retrospective. <laughs> <laughs> but then... So, here we are in Wellington in 1993. I launch off the back of a truck. I can't get anybody to interact with me. So I go into the bank, and it's the days before ATMs. So I write out a cheque. It's Friday, you see, and the election's the day after. And I go over, lovely old wood-lined, you know, country sort of um, branch of uh, the National Australia Bank, and I present the cheque, and the bloke behind the counter, young bloke, recognises me, smiles broadly, says, good, you know, I hope it goes well for you tomorrow but I'll have to get this cleared. You know the way they used to have to have your cheque cleared by some other officer? He went down the back and there was a very attractive young lady there. It's all right, my wife and my daughter are here, so I'm not sort of thinking inappropriately of that very attractive young lady. Uh, but whatever it was that he said to her triggered in her a deep need to express her views on politicians. Ah, oh, she said, politicians. I've got to vote for the first time this time. She said, I don't know what to do because they're all terrible. She said, uh, and her voice carried, you see, it was coming all the way down the front. My dad says when you vote for them, it just encourages them. You end up with more of them. <laughs> she said, I wouldn't feed them. So she came back down the front and the corporate training re-exerted itself, this beautiful smile. And she said, is Mr Anderson here? And I said, yes, that's me. And she said, I can cash your cheque for you. And I said, thank you very much. So she's cashing it. And while she's doing that, I said to her, now, Angela, that was the nameplate, you see, I'd love you to believe that, uh, I, I'm sure you would like me to believe that not all banks are the same. Some are better than others. She said, oh, the National Australia Bank's a great, great bank. Why, why do you say that? I said, well, I'd like you to believe that not all politicians are the same. Some are better than others. She said, that's a, that's a funny thing to say. Why do you say that? And I said, well, Angela, you have a voice that carries. And I, by this time, there's a lot of interest around the counter. And 
I heard you down the back saying, you don't think politicians are worth feeding and that if you vote for them, it just ends up with more of them. More, you end up with more of them. My name's John Anderson. I'm the member for Guider. I'd love your vote on Saturday. Well, this look of dawning horror sort of <laughs> crept across her face. She went from white to red to puce. And then the way you do sometimes when you're really in trouble and you know you are, stupidly you try and dig yourself out of it. She coughed and spluttered. Oh, she said, please don't take offence. I didn't mean the little ones like you. I meant the big ones like Paul Keating and John Hewson. <laughs> so you see, they keep your feet on the ground in the bush. Okay. Uh, one final question uh, on a different subject. Uh, Julia and you have um, uh, parented five children, uh, Jess, Nick, Georgie and Laura, and Andrew. <clears throat> Andrew is no longer with us and is with the Lord. And I'm just wondering how it is that your experience with Andrew has deepened your faith and trust in God. Yeah, well, we did. We had a family of four and then a surprise. And he was born in 1998, which was coincidentally by far the toughest of the years I had in politics. Uh, and so we were sort of privately carrying this deeply troubling sort of burden with us. A poor little fellow was born with multiple, multiple problems and lived for six months. Um, and uh, it was a, a, a dreadful year, really, a dreadful time. And I think I, I'm happy to answer the question. John asked me whether I'd mind answering this. I do so for two reasons. One is, you know, there are many people who have been through these experiences and they're deeply searing and they raise all sorts of very hard questions. They also drive families apart. I remember a colleague, you ask about those moments in politics, a very wise and loving and concerned friend who knew what was going on because apart from John Howard, very few people did. But this mate did. And he just drew up me alongside me one day and he said, how are you going? He said, I'm going to give you an awful statistic, um, because he was an expert in this area, uh, not out of, uh, not wanting to make your life tougher, but to give you resolve. He said, in your situation, four-fifths of marriages break up. They're very tough on families. And so many of you have been or may have been or will know someone in that sort of situation. I think the only thing that I can say out of it in the end is that, and I think it's true for Julia as well as me, you know, it's dreadful when you do have a face and you say, God, why are you doing this? It's infinitely worse if you don't and there's no sense to it and there's no resolution and no hope and it is all meaningless because, you see, we have... What we can know is that these things are the result of a broken world. There is an explanation. They may be painful, uh, but God can fix it and so that little fellow's gone ahead as part of the family. He's out of his pain. That's far better than thinking of the alternative. And God did see us through as a family and we're deeply thankful for that. Uh, and we know that one day we'll be united again. We trust and hope and pray that our children, the other remaining children, will be there with us. Thanks, John. Um, you've just come back from Myanmar and there's a theological college up there that OC supports. And uh, we here at Church by the Bridge are supporting Stephen Nung, who is a lecturer at that college. Yeah. Um, can you tell us just very briefly a little bit uh, or just some reflections you had on your visit there? Yeah, well, uh, you know, Burma, as it was known, has had an unbelievably tragic time for many, many decades. Uh, it was occupied by the Japanese during the Second World War uh, and they experienced a reign of brutality uh, and of horror, which is almost beyond description. If you want to know more about it, read Anthony Beaver's latest book, The Second World War and you'll recognise that the Asian theatre of war was paralleled really only by, by only the, probably the Russian front for sheer, cold, 
brutality. And then they had three years of enlightened self-rule from the British, that's their description of it, not mine, from 1945 to 1948, and then since then they've been a military dictatorship. So it's 60 million people, only just beginning to open up now. It's a Buddhist country. Now many people will have you nice, believe that the Buddhists are all very nice, but that is not their perspective, not when you live in that country. They have quite a different perspective on how they're often treated. So they've had the military and the Buddhists to contend with. They feel incredibly oppressed. Despite that, there are many believers in the country. There are 100 Bible colleges in Myanmar. Uh, and Overseas Council Australia, you'll see quite a bit of this on the video, uh, is uh, supporting one of the really good ones, which we believe will have a trickle-down effect. It can provide not just good pastors and leaders for the church, and the churches that, you know, for, that, that receive their people afterwards, but also for other theological colleges. And as the young people, you know, as you got to know them, they kept saying to me when they knew that I'd had a background in politics, they kept saying, how can we as Christians be nation builders? How do we set up forms of government that are fair, that pursue justice and fairness and mercy and set up economic models that produce the wealth so that we can look after the disadvantaged? You're getting the buzz? We don't think about these things, do we? When you haven't got them. One of them said to me, this prosperity gospel thing we sometimes hear out of a certain church in Sydney, you people are all so critical of it. He said, we just ache for a tiny little bit of that prosperity. And it was a really hard message to hear. But it is a great college doing an incredible job in very tough circumstances. And I'll talk more about that later. But it was a an incredible experience to meet with those young men and women uh, in, uh, in a situation where they are being taught the scriptures uh, and having Christian discipleship modelled very, very powerfully. And I'm aware that um, many of them are on scholarships supported, paid for, by people out of churches like this. So thank you for that. They appreciate that hugely. I'm going to be really frank and say there's a whole heap more we could do for that college. They've got a massive waiting list and they can't move. It's completely constrained by the office space that they occupy. And the only thing that works well, the stairs work well, don't they, Alison? But there are no lifts, seventh and eighth floors, and you sort of climb up this funny little lift a set of stairs and you get to the stop story. The only thing that works well is the air conditioning. Oh, and the library's pretty good. But the chapel is minute. They can't put another mouse in it, let alone another human being, when they gather for their services. Um, the only thing that works well is the air conditioning and I commented on that and they said yes, might have been your church but some Australians bought them a generator so that the air conditioning could keep working so they could keep studying because it's a hot climate a fantastic sort of thing to do uh, but they've got a waiting list they could double it overnight they could double their numbers overnight they've got the faculty to do it I think but they haven't got the room so there's so many things that can be done anyway that's for later Dear Father God we thank you so much for the work of Overseas Council of Australia. Thank you for the people who tirelessly work on the staff of this organisation and support and train people on the ground in many nations, teaching their fellow countrymen about Jesus. Father, we thank you particularly for our link missionary, Stephen Nung. Please bless and protect him, his wife and children as he continues to study in the Philippines, writing his paper on the best method for evangelising the millions of Buddhists in Myanmar. We praise you, Lord, that Stephen's health issues have cleared up and he is again able to concentrate on his studies. 
May you give him great wisdom and insight as he writes his paper. And may he, his wife and kids be a blessing to all that they meet. Father God, we thank you so much that John, Julia and Jess are here tonight. As John comes to speak to us now, we pray that your spirit would speak through him and we ask that you would please make our hearts attentive to your leading. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Anna, thank you very much for praying. Uh, John, thank you for being gentle with your interview. Uh, and good to see you and Coronie, old friends from way back. Paul, thank you so much to you and your team. You've entertained us already uh, and you've been kind enough to, if not quite give me your pulpit, at least give me a space to speak here. And I appreciate that because you and your team are concerned to see the word of God upheld. Uh, and I will seek to honour that in my brief remarks tonight. I want to make three points to you. The first is that if we understand the heart of Christ, then we understand that mission lies deep at the centre of that heart. And if we're to be Christ-like, we need to recognise that aspect of his makeup and act on it. That's the first point. The second point that I want to make to you is that the world has changed far more than we in this little Western outpost seem to comprehend. And we need to be modest enough to recognise that it's time to stop being smug and lazy and even, if I dare say it, occasionally arrogant when we look at what God is really doing and where he's moving and how things are changing and recognise that it requires a different response from us as Western believers, belonging to a culture that's turning its back on God, and the third thing I want to say is that I think we should remember that we're told to love God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, mind, mind. We need to think strategically and intelligently and intentionally about how we will carry forward our responsibilities, including mission, the great the great uh, uh, you know, uh, commandment to go forward and uh, the Great Commission. So the first, in Matthew 9 at the end, we get a couple of farming analogies. As Julia said in that, uh, uh, in that video, uh, we get a lot of uh, farming illustrations used by Christ. So we have, after a series of um, very powerful miracles which are plainly designed to point to the heart of Christ and his compassion, but also to his power, and which are recorded so that we might be confronted with the same question that the observers of those miracles were, who is this Christ? And hopefully to draw the right conclusion that he is indeed God, there since before the beginning of time, beyond the end, limitless and beyond our comprehension, Having established his authority, Matthew then goes very quickly to an, in, a, in, in a different direction. He has Jesus moving around the towns and villages, this is at the end of Matthew 9, if you want to look at it later, and he takes great compassion on the people. His heart is a compassionate one because they are like lost sheep, harassed. One translation says, 
harangued and without a shepherd. Well, they were without a shepherd. That was a slap at the religious leaders of the day and a pointer to the fact that a true shepherd and a good shepherd had now arrived who cared for them and will ensure their safety if they'll place their trust in him. That's a remarkable thing. I'm a farmer. I don't work with sheep anymore, but for the first half of my life I did because my father did. Uh, and I'm always amazed uh, that God says he cares for sheep. Have you any idea how irritating and how dumb and how obstinate and how stupid sheep are and how from the moment they're born they're determined to die on you? That's what sheep are like. And yet despite the obvious uh, parallels, God doesn't give up on us. He cares passionately for us. He then switches farming analogies. He comes to the crop, the harvest. And he says, uh, uh, you know, the harvest is plentiful. Pray, therefore, for the labourers to bring it in. Now, I'm, I'm a cropper. I love growing crops. Uh, you saw two on that video. One was wheat. That was the one with the emus running through it before it ripened. That would have been done in about, uh, I suppose, September, October. It was ripe and harvest by the end of November. Um, you thought the emus were nice, didn't you? Quite nice, quaint little rural scene. And I'm thinking, how are we going to get rid of those emus? They run through the crop, they flatten an unbelievable amount of it. And if I sound like I'm down on animals today, I'm not. I love animals, I love dogs and I love horses. You saw two prize horses there, Julia and me leading them along. Uh, but, you know, those emus, um, uh, you know, uh, pound for pound, an emu has a brain one-twentieth the size of a household chook. So they're pretty dumb. They're a problem, and getting them out of the crop, recognising that they are, of course, uh, part of our national emblem and they're protected, well, it's a bit of an issue, but let's not go there. Um, bringing that crop in, though, to a farmer is very important. It's not just a pretty picture, as it might look to the casual observer. It matters. It's important. It's your livelihood. It's what you're about. Furthermore, you need to think through carefully... The whole business of growing crops, picking the time when they're ripe for harvest and then going about the business of harvest. You need headers, harvesters. You need drivers for them. You need people to drive pickup bins and trucks. You need people to service the machinery. You need people to supply the chemicals and the plastics and uh, the fuel and the oils and the lubricating and so forth that goes into that whole business now. It's very sophisticated. It's a bit like the analogy of the body. There is a place for many people in different roles in bringing in the harvest. Now, the harvest that Jesus is talking about, it's not just a pretty picture either. It's not, not just a teeming multitude of humans in the same way that a wheat crop looks like countless millions of wheat heads with grains in them. It's souls and it matters enormously to our Christ. That's the first point I want to make. Second point I want to make is that my family have been here since the very early days of settlement. They came out very early days. It was a very different time. Christianity was a European religion. It was, in fact, the age of the great evangelical arisings. You had Wesley and uh, Whitfield, and then you had the political activists, the Wilberforces involved in the anti-slavery campaign, and then... Uh, the Lord Shaftesbury's and the labour laws and all of those things that have so civilised our society that we've now decided we can forget about and we don't teach them anymore in our schools. 
But you know, those people, those Christians were remarkable, Wilberforce included. He was involved in just about every worthwhile missionary society you could think of. They didn't think of themselves as having a little mission field called England or Scotland or Wales. They recognised the importance of that and that harvest that was out there. In the days of Windjam, as you got on one of those ships, you didn't know how long you were going to get there or even if you were going to get there. And you had a pretty high chance that if you got there, you'd end up murdered or dying of some exotic disease. Did that disguise them? No, they didn't. They saw the appropriate way to send labourers out into the harvest, and so many of them were willing themselves to be labourers, that they got stuck into it in an extraordinary way. And missionaries went forth into all the corners of the earth in what must be one of the most extraordinary episodes in the whole of human history, really. And the results were spectacular, far more so than we realise. One simple instance will suffice, I think, uh, or reference. China. There are many stories about the remarkable men and women uh, who served in China from uh, the West, whether it was the Hudson Taylors or even uh, Ruth Bell and her family, Billy Graham's wife. Uh, I always wish I could have met her. I thought there was an absolutely brilliant line of hers when she was asked on television in relation to her relationship with her famous husband, Billy Graham. You've probably all heard it. It was Walter Conkright, wasn't it, in the US, who said, have you ever, have, uh, have you ever contemplated divorcing Billy? Has he ever been difficult? Have you ever thought about divorce? And she, she replied quick as a flash, no, divorce, never. Murder, many times. But all those remarkable people. And then, you know, it looked as though it had been completely lost during the Cultural Revolution, didn't it? The missionaries were expelled and the church appeared to be extinct. It wasn't. The seeds had been sown. But we now know that so staggering has the power of God in China been that there are at least 120 million, taking a line through all the estimates, believing Chinese. The number is exploding. And some people say that by the middle of this century there will be 500 million Chinese Christians. And even their government is now surprisingly opening the door. An interesting little teller is that they've just asked Alpha to put their marriage book, apparently, I've never, I don't know much about it, but apparently it's a very good marriage book, into every bookshop in China. The atheist regime, nominally atheist anyway, in Beijing, recognises the social and economic costs of divorce and wants to do something about it. There are 5,000 applications for divorce a day in China. Probably sounds like a lot, but I suspect relative to most Western countries, that's just a trickle, given their population. They're worried about it. Now, isn't that remarkable? That's how much China's, all their great educational institutions had Christian roots too. So economic advancement in China stems largely from the work of the missionaries. Christ is a nation builder as well as a kingdom builder when his words are taken seriously and when lives are transformed by the renewing of minds. That remarkable work has resulted then in staggering numbers. There wouldn't be that number of Christians in the whole of the European West. Did you pick up that interesting term that Alison used in the majority world? We're in the West, we're in the minority world now. So we think we can do without Christianity. It's old hat and we slavishly buy the books that the new atheists pump out um, Paul, dare I say it, most of them from Britain. You know, the Christopher Hitchens, long dead, no, dead now, I know, but, you know, the, the, the Dawkinses, trashy scientific books. That's a quote from a scientist who's not a believer. Makes a fortune out of writing scientific trash. A very senior scientist said to me that to me only very recently. 
but people slavishly buy them because it's fashionable now to try and justify your belief that God doesn't exist and that's fashionable in the West because it doesn't fit with our pursuit of our own best ends as we perceive them to be. So very easy for us in this country, in this culture now, to feel besieged and to want to withdraw. I want to say to you we can't, but we ought to be massively challenged and encouraged when we recognise what God is really doing. This will not be the century and age of atheism. It won't even be an age of secularism. Dawkins is dead wrong. Mankind's not moving away from faith. This will be an age of unbelievable ferment. I hope the violence is minimised, but debate and argument and discussion about ideas and beliefs and religions, it's happening now. And the results are staggering. There are more Christians today, both in absolute terms and in relative terms, than there have ever been. And the numbers are growing faster than they ever have. Africa now is 70% Christianised. And yes, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. They desperately need more Bible colleges and better training materials and all of those things. But here in our own part of the world, I've referenced China, India today, you know, if you look up the media stats, they'll say, oh yeah, there's a few Christians in India. Because in India they uh, describe you as a Christian if you have an Anglo name. But actually there are many Indians who don't have Anglo-Saxon names who are believers. As in probably 130 or 140 million church growing very rapidly as well in that country. Now here's an interesting one for you. The fourth most populous nation on earth, right on our doorstep, Indonesia, on the way to being the fourth most powerful economic country in the world as well, is Muslim, isn't it? And Australians, the surveys all show, are worried and uncertain and don't know what the relationship should look like and are often very frightened about it. They're not making much of an effort to understand it. Why would I say that? I'll say that because we now know that seven or 800,000 Australians go to Indonesia every year and 50, nearly all of them to Bali, okay? And 56% of the Australians who go to Bali do not know that they are in Indonesia. So this country that's our neighbour, the fourth biggest nation on earth, which is incredibly important for our future, about which we worry incessantly, we understand so much about it that when we go on holidays there, we don't know that we're in it. <laughs> Isn't it time we woke up? Let me tell you a couple of things about what's happening there Christianly. I've come to know a very prominent family up there who are well and truly converted. That family is spearheading the development of a university that has about 10,000 students in where they teach medicine and they teach business studies and global studies uh, and teaching. They are building 48 state-of-the-art hospitals, 350 beds typically to 400, 48. How's that for a vision? And staffing them with the doctors out of their hospital and the, nurse, and the nurses as they are able to train them, doctors out of the university. And when they've got it up and running, they build a 2,000 bed for the poor, uh, bed hospital for the poor beside it. They are building 1,110 Christian schools across Indonesia. And the teachers for those schools are being uh, offered scholarships. They're from all over uh, that country. I was talking to a media expert over dinner, somebody who's involved in... Um, uh, in uh, uh, media platforms. Uh, that family has built a 4G network right across Jakarta. That's greater than the population of Australia. They have more sophisticated technology than we do. What for? Ministry. That's what they build it for. That's one family 
in that country, which we know so little about, that has a vision that extends to that degree for taking the gospel forward in their country. That's vision. That's commitment. It's real. What a challenge. How encouraging is that? Indeed, uh, their number three pastors a church. He asked me to go and speak in it. And I did an almighty gulp. I really was pretty fearful of this. I thought, how are we going to get on? You know, it's not always a place where Christians are welcome, you think? Anyway, I said yes. So off I go. And I discovered that, um, you know, um, they're pretty good at promotion, those people. It's not just Western politicians that know how to tell a story. Uh, I went into this massive purpose-built church, 6,000 members, and they had what they told me was the biggest plasma screen in the Southern Hemisphere. I've since been told it must have been an LED, but it was huge, absolutely enormous. It would have been the length of this building, and I'm not exaggerating nearly as high. I've never seen anything like it. And what was worse was that it had a massive picture of yours truly on it, taken before I had any grey hair. Don't know where they found it. It was quite flattering. I should have taken it home and given it to Julia and remind her of what I might have once been. But there was a, a wonderfully friendly and warm little Indonesian fellow who came up to me. He looked at me, he looked at the photograph, he looked back at me and he just said with an evil glint in his eye, how long ago this photo taken? <laughs> Worse than that still though was that beside it they had in massive writing, well in tiny small writing, we honour our guest in massive writing John Anderson. In very small writing, so you hardly notice that former deputy and then in massive writing Prime Minister of Australia. <laughs> And I thought, I hope Tony Abbott's not about. <laughs> but I preached in that church uh, on the prodigal son or the two sons and uh, their gracious father. And then on my way up on a little train up into Bandung, I can never say it, Bandung, Ban Bandung, something like that. I'm hopeless at pronunciation. Where one of the colleges that we support, there might be people in this room who support it. It, it featured briefly, most of that was Myanmar, uh, but Tyrannus. Uh, is there in, um, in that uh, province, about two or three hours away, in the train. Beautiful train trip. Thoroughly recommend it. It's a very pretty place. Incredibly so. We get up there to what they call the Paris of Indonesia. Couldn't see it. You couldn't move. It was worse than Paris in August. It absolutely shoulder to shoulder. But we eventually found our way up the hill to this Bible college. And, you know, it's just incredible. An American had given them... Uh, $200,000 to build it back when $200,000 built a really nice campus and then disappeared. No one knows where he went. He just gave the money, said, build it. I don't want any glory out of it. Disappeared back to Canada. And that college today is training people for ministry in Indonesia. Let me just prompt you to think a bit about this for a moment. you have any idea how many Christians there are in Indonesia? Population about 240 million? The answer is about 35 million and exploding. Any of you know that? Now you stop and do your maths. How many trained people, Bible teachers, do you have at Church by the Bridge? Eight. For how many people? 600. Do the maths. How many well-trained Bible teachers do you need for a population of 35 million in your churches, numbers exploding? It's a gargantian task, isn't it? And who are we reveling in the luxury of being so well taught, having people who care so much 
And I salute your ministry team, because they've given up a lot. Most of them, for all I know, probably every one of them, highly intelligent people, could have gone and made a fortune if they'd lived by the world's values, but they're not. They're living by Christ, so they're ministering to you. Bless them for that. And I salute them, and I hope you pray for them and stand by them. But why should we have, because I'm in the same boat, the luxury of that sort of level of service from God and his people when others have no hope of achieving it? You see, the two colleges that we support in Indonesia, they're great places. I'm right behind them, particularly Tyrannus, the one I know a little bit about. And there I was, you know, and I'll tell you a little story because I said to them, for all I know, the man, the people responsible might be here. Uh, One of them stood up and said, I'm on a bursary uh, from uh, an Australian family. He said, I come from a poor family. I have no money. I'll tell you why I have no money. I grew up in a violent part of Indonesia. And when I was a kid, I saw my parents and my siblings hacked to death in front of my eyes. He said, I was so filled with hate that until I met Christ... I couldn't put that hatred aside and even then I didn't learn to love until I came to this faculty where we all live on campus, the Moore College model, and the faculty members, their wives and their husbands, one another. Do you remember this fellow telling the story, Alison? I mean, you know, it was incredibly moving. They demonstrated, they modelled love. So I was able to move on from just putting hatred aside to learning to love again. Now, thanks to an Australian, not only has that happened for me, I'm being trained in the scriptures and I'm going out to pastor a church. That's gold. That's gold. And that's what OCA does. We provide a means, we recognise the immense value of good training. We recognise that the wonderful work that missionaries have done has given us an exploding church right under our noses, not in Europe where we've turned our back, but in all the parts of the world that we happen to be in, in Australia, by the way, because we've got colleges in Papua New Guinea and in Indonesia in Sri Lanka, in China, in Mongolia, in Pakistan, in India, a couple in Africa. What have I missed? Um, uh, Myanmar, you've seen that? Uh, that's, that was a bit of a faux pas because the one that this church supports. Um, uh, about 25 of them, and they're training up people. It's not, this is not some in competition to the missionary model. I salute what they have done, what they are doing, what they'll continue doing. People who go out from congregations like yours to be missionaries... But God has blessed their work and given us, many of those countries, a huge indigenous church. And now the right thing for us to do, I believe, with the remaining strength and resources and the rich heritage of Bible knowledge and training that we have, is to pass over as much of that as we can to benefit them. That's what we seek to do through OCA. I hope you can really see the value of that. If you think I'm on a hard sell, I'm on a hard sell. Can I say that to you? I didn't even know this organisation existed when I was Deputy Prime Minister. It was only when I left that a board chairman, who I respect enormously for the power of his intellect and his capacity to think strategically, said, why don't you join the board? I think I can persuade the board to have you. And uh, so I did, and I wound up as chairman. And the more I look at the world around me, the more conscious I am of the need for the gospel, for nation-building as much as anything else, one of those young blokes there, I think you might have saw me, I gave him a little punch on the arm. He spoke nine languages and I told him he was showing off. I said, which one do you think in? He said, uh, Burmese. I said, which one do you speak in? He said, oh, I worked through all the translations until I got it right in English. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, he and a couple of others said to me, they drew me aside and said, how do we as Christians build a nation? He said, it'll have to be us. We're the ones that are, have a concern for justice and hope and peace 
and a decent welfare system for people in need and for government that's open and transparent and honest. How do we do it? How do we do it? They're all skills and abilities that we have in huge, rich deposits in our culture. They're a wonderful byproduct, are they not? A Bible-believing faith. But the really important thing is that there is a rich harvest of souls out there, people who need to be brought into a knowledge of Christ and built up in it so that they are prepared when they meet him, as we all will do. We meet him as a friend or we meet him as an enemy, but meet him we will. And as he's loved us, we need to live there, love them. And we need then, having recognised that, to apply our minds as to how best to do it. Uh, and I think this is a wonderful model. It is complementary, not in opposition to or in competition with any of the existing models of mission. It is complementary. It is the logical thing to do when you see how God has blessed missionary endeavour to go out then and build up the training centres in their own con uh, cultural context uh, that's relevant for wherever they happen to be so they have the leaders and the pastors of their own. Do the rough maths on Indonesia. On the ratio of eight to 600, you need about a million pastors plus probably for the church today in Indonesia alone. Praise God for that. But let us recognise the challenge and start to get engaged with our minds as to how we can make it happen. And if you happen to think OCA can help there or anywhere else, well, we're your best friends. Thanks. <laughs>